Hello and welcome back to the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. My name is Megan and we are already at tip number 9. Only this one and number 10 to go. So thank you for joining us again. And I'm going to be talking in this episode about knowing the risk and protective factors. Because while no child is immune from sexual abuse, we know it can happen to anyone, there are definitely some populations that are at a higher risk, and so I want to address those today, but also talk to you about various protective factors that can be in place to make sure that your child is a least likely victim. So starting today, I'm going to be talking about the risk factors. So some of the groups that are really most susceptible, most vulnerable to sexual abuse are preschool age children. These children are particularly vulnerable because they don't have the language skills or the knowledge to accurately communicate. And if they are communicating any kind of potential sexual abuse, they're more likely to be perceived as being confused or um, their allegations are very often dismissed because people don't want to believe that this kind of abuse would ever happen to a very small child. But as I've said before, what sex offenders are looking for are children that can keep a secret and that are not going to communicate and so that the abuse is happening. So this population is very vulnerable to that because they are very easily tricked and they also probably don't have a lot of the language skills. So that's why I tell parents that you should start talking to your kids as young as possible as soon as you're teaching them language with making sure they know the anatomically correct names for their body parts. And as they get older and more self-sufficient, uh, knowing that they're the boss of their bodies. And so the earlier you can teach them this, the better. The next population is going to be children with disabilities. Again, for a lot of the same reasons, because of their vulnerability, for their lack of language. And so they have a lot of different care providers very often in their lives. And again, uh, if they do try to communicate about the abuse, they're often dismissed as being confused or not able to understand or that this couldn't possibly have happened to them. Again, it's not about sexual desirability, but it's about power and control. And so these populations also are a lot easier to exhibit control over. Another vulnerable population is the LGBTQ community. Gay, lesbian, transgender kids are all very vulnerable. They have a lot of confusion sometimes about their sexual identity. And this can really be preyed upon by sex offenders. They can be people that are making themselves into a safe haven, uh, cool adult that this child can come and talk to about their confusion or their questions about their sexuality. And so sometimes sex offenders make themselves approachable 
Um, but then they can also spin that around and use it against the child to make them feel additional shame. But these kids very often have a lot of shame associated with their sexuality, and so this is something that is appealing to a sex offender because it would be probably more likely that they would keep quiet about the abuse. And so um, these these kiddos can just, and, and very often they're feeling like they're having to keep a secret, right? When we talked before in tip number four about secrets not being safe. And if a child doesn't feel like they can safely talk to anyone about their sexual orientation, about any confusion they might have over over their gender or who they're attracted to, if they don't feel that they can speak of this, then it is going to make it even more complicated for them to speak of any kind of abuse that might be happening. I also just want to take an opportunity here to clarify, because there is a myth in our culture that somehow sexual orientation might lead to sexually um, offensive behaviors. Um, I think on stories years back about the Boy Scouts and, and not wanting to allow gay troop leaders and it was being cited as, as fears that they could be sexually abusive. A, a gay troop leader would be no more risky for a child than a straight one because sexual abuse, again, is about power and control. And so a troop leader that is married and has a wife with five kids is not completely um, impossible to imagine being an offender um, of young boys or young girls for that matter. While some offenders do have a preference for a certain gender, most of the time they're just looking for a situation to exhibit power and control over a child, and it's whatever population that they are going to be able to have access to to manipulate. Um, so when you think of cases like Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, who was married with a family, um, but most, I think all of his victims were male victims, and who, who knows how he identified, um, well, I mean, he, he put himself uh, the face on of being a, a straight man, but um, in his sexually abusive behaviors, um, he was preying on young males, but that does not make him gay, and uh, very often it is nothing to do at all with homosexuality, but rather just that power and control nature of abuse. So, and then just another very vulnerable population are runaway and homeless youth. Um, these youth are not necessarily vulnerable to the classic kind of sex offender um, that, that I've been talking about throughout a lot of this presentation, but um, more so to, to coming into um, it, the, the lifestyle of being um, in child sex trafficking. Um, these kids are um, very often preyed upon by, by pimps, people looking to be able to um, solicit these young children, and they're particularly vulnerable. Very often they are in the foster care system, or at least have been, and are in the process of aging out. They have a long history of child abuse and neglect themselves, um, very often sexual abuse, and they're extremely vulnerable. Um, 
very often without a home, without a job, without any kind of potential prospects for income. And uh, these pimps very often prey on these kids, make sure that they can develop some kind of addiction so that they are dependent on that lifestyle. And um, then they solicit them to, to people that are sex offenders that um, want to pay money to have sexual contact with with children, with teenagers. So very often these kids aren't perceived as victims as they should be, but they are children and they are forgotten children that society has really pushed aside and at no fault of their own. They were born into families very often that have very high stress levels. And so that has put them at risk. So that really gets into the other potential risk factors, not the populations, but things that might be happening in a home that might make a child much more vulnerable to sexual abuse. Um, so some of those things are a parent's lack of understanding of a child's needs developmentally and really lacking parenting skills. Um, so these lead to these abusive situations that might end them up in the child welfare system. There's often a parent history of child abuse or neglect of their own. And so there's this intergenerational transference of their abuse from one generation to another. Substance abuse of the parents or other mental health issues of the parents, including depression in the family. Um, these, these parents are less likely to be able to supervise their children and provide them with their needs and make them particularly vulnerable to uh, a sex offender looking for a child that's going to really be seeking attention and um, adult approval and love if they're being neglected at home. Um, there's also um, the parents um, not, you know, having children at a very young age, um, maybe having very low levels of education, being a single parent, large numbers of dependent children in the home, low income. These are all just stress factors that lead to a child's uh, potential for being neglected and then vulnerable. Um, there's neuro, there's other things such as, um, just caregivers that, um, have a lot of people in the home. This might happen in homes where there's substance abuse. And so just a lot of people that are really unknown to the child, non-biological relatives, or just kind of transient, um, people coming in and out of the houses, uh, in and out of the home. Um, parents' thoughts and emotions that tend to support or justify maltreatment. Sometimes parents, when they've grown up in these homes themselves, they uh, are, are more prone to accept physical abuse, uh, minimize domestic violence, these kind of things. Sometimes there's just a lot of family disorganization, um, a lot of violence in the home, especially intimate partner violence. Uh, the parents' stress, poor parent-child relationships, just negative interactions. Remember, a lot of what this class is about is creating these children 
that will feel comfortable approaching their parent and telling if something has happened to them. And that's a lot less likely to happen in an environment um, where it's the, the relationship is founded on, on fear. And then it, in some areas, in some neighborhoods, um, there's a lot of just disadvantages. And so maybe high poverty rates, um, residential instability, so you're moving a lot, not able to develop any real solid relationships, high unemployment rates, high population density and substance abuse, um, all play into some of the risk factors of not only making a child vulnerable to the abuse, but making the child vulnerable to keeping the secrecy about the abuse. So if you remember me talking in earlier episodes about the adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs, then you'll probably notice that a lot of what I've been talking about is just a, a, a lot of these ACEs that uh, children experience. So very often trauma is cumulative. And when a child is exposed to one trauma, it makes them particularly vulnerable to others and they kind of build on themselves. So, so there is good news though. Um, even though there are a lot of kids that are particularly vulnerable, either within the child welfare system or certain populations, the good news is that really kids that are even really at a very high risk, they can be less likely to be victimized or at least more likely to come forward and tell about their victimization if they have certain protective factors in place. And so that's what we really want to consider and build upon is that the more that a child has good self-esteem, good coping skills, um, really a, a positive mindset and way of thinking about things, perceiving the world, um, being able to have good emotional regulation skills, just being organized to have some kind of executive functioning skills. And these are all just sometimes inherent qualities of a child, um, kind of like personality. You know, I mean, there's definitely personality factors like temperament or just having a really good, solid sense of humor. Um, just being a really kind of charming kid can make you be able to develop better, more positive relationships. And all of these things can, can be kind of like individual factors that can, can make a child more, more likely to be able to recover from something if it does happen by reaching out and telling. Um, or maybe it, it will make them less vulnerable um, just to begin with. So just being able to be comfortable asking for help and, and having somebody that's willing to listen to this child, somebody that is willing to take the time. This is why so much is really reliant on having good school communities, because sometimes this is a child's safest community, is being able to go away from the home and connect with teachers and develop those relationships and, and having somebody that will really listen to them if they, they need to make some kind of disclosure. Having a structured home and having household rules that provide supervision, but also encourage and allow for privacy is, is really important. 
on being able to to make a child uh, uh, less likely to be victimized. Um, child internet and cell phone usage being monitored, supervised, having that computer in a central location and not in their rooms unsupervised on the internet. It's important to have parents that have good emotional regulation skills themselves and they're able to exemplify that to their kids, that they have a positive relationship with each other and they can demonstrate handling stress appropriately when stressful things happen. Uh, having pro-social behaviors of the parents and so that would be, you know, rather than substance abusing and um, other negative coping skills, just having parents that, that are out there in positive, healthy relationships, practicing exercise, whatever need they need to do for stress reduction, and having parents um, really demonstrate being open to their own mental health treatment. And because intergenerational abuse is common, unfortunately, that is a risk factor that if a parent has been abused, if they haven't been able to fully uh, recover and resolve their abuse issues, a lot of times they're stuck in that trauma and it makes their kids vulnerable. So it's really important that they seek their own mental health treatment so that they can get out of their own post-traumatic stress. And that is a great example to lead for their child to demonstrate how you can recover and how you can get better by seeking out uh, those resources. So just some final thoughts on protective factors. Realizing that kids, they just, they want our attention. Sometimes it can be really demanding. And mommy, mommy, look at this. Oh, dad, watch, watch. And they just, they're constantly attention seeking. And sex offenders recognize this and they they prey upon that because they're ready and willing to give these kids attention, sometimes to some really exhausted parents that are super super grateful that they're they're willing to to take their kids off their hands for a little bit. So just be aware that your child is going to be very vulnerable if if they are super attention seeking from others as much as possible. Try to provide that yourself and just recognizing that they they're looking to please adults. So provide attention. Make sure that they know that they are getting your approval because there's there's really just no no substitute for your attention and supervision. Teaching your kids that that no will be respected is really important. Demonstrating these boundaries in your own life and just showing that that sometimes it is more important to make yourself feel safe and setting that boundary rather than being polite. And so any opportunity that you have to demonstrate this in front of your kids is a good thing. Making sure that your child is not isolated, that they have people that they can go to for help, that they have connections with others. Question if one child, one adult situations are necessary or even if they're appropriate, feel free to drop by into situations unexpectedly. I remember reading some testimonial of a sex offender who was a piano teacher and he talked about how he had these half hour lessons and he knew there was this window after the parents had dropped the child off. 
He would just give it a little time to make sure they wouldn't come back because they forgot something. And he knew that no parents would be showing up more than 10 minutes early. And so he had his his window that he felt safe being able to abuse these kids. And he actually said that if any time, even once, somebody had interrupted, he would have been so scared that he wouldn't have tried it anymore in that context. But no one ever did. And so just drop by unexpectedly. Don't be afraid to to ask questions or just to be that parent that is watching their child because it will definitely make them prey on another child, which is not necessarily the right solution, but it will keep your child safe. Because I think that there there's just a lot of kids out there and we want to make as few of those vulnerable to them um, as as possible. So, um, and, and just don't be afraid to express your concerns and to ask questions either of the offender or of your child. So I think of situations such as my kid maybe needing a ride home from soccer practice. And if I'm frantically calling people and, and trying to arrange for that, that's one thing. If I have somebody that seems to be strangely interested in driving my daughter home from practice, that would raise a red, red flag for me. If they're just offering and and not necessarily accepting my no, I've got this, no, no, really, it's no big deal, and kind of pushing it, um, that would just make me raise an eyebrow for sure. And And I think it's important that, you know, if they do end up riding home with a coach or something like that, that you make sure to take the time to follow up and be like, hey, what was that like riding home with coach tonight? Was that weird? Or, you know, riding home with that other dad? I mean, how was that? Oh, it was just, he was, he was listening to some radio thing the whole time and we didn't talk at all. Okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable than he was asking me all these weird questions about if I had a boyfriend yet. So that definitely will tell you something else. So so making sure to follow up and, and have those conversations with your kids. Um, and then when you're in situations with like one-on-one um, or maybe even a situation like a dance class, don't be afraid to be that, that parent that asks questions. So if you're hearing from your daughter that there's a secret dance going on, then be that person and ask the teacher about what's the secret dance. And if she tells you, oh gosh, she spoiled the Mother's Day dance surprise, you can say, okay, well, we just don't use the word secrets in our house. We talk about surprises, so, and explain why. And if they're very receptive to that, then that's great. And if they act like you're being accusatory and they're taken aback and defensive, that is giving you different information that you really want to pay attention to. So don't be afraid to be be that parent asking those questions. So that is basically it for the risk and protective factors around sexual abuse. And so you have now completed tip number nine. Thank you for tuning into this episode. And we will have our final episode, tip number 10, Raising Resilient Kids, the next time. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this for keeping your kids safe. And I want to once again reiterate that if you need help, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is available to you at 1-800-656-HOPE. Or, of course, if there's anything that you need to report to your local law enforcement or child protective services agency, 
please do. Thank you very much, and you have a great day.